where they had a little meal and a toy that some marketing genius had called a Happy Meal. And she wanted it, and uh, the parents said, it's not a good deal. The toy's not worth it. The price is just ballooned because of the toy. You can't have it. But the little girl said, no, no. I want it more than anything I've ever wanted in life. You don't understand. It's not just uh, the toy. It's buying happiness. And that I think there's a little vacuum inside of me that unless I get it, I can never be content unless I get contented in the Happy Meal. And if I can get it, I'll be happy and content the rest of my life. Well, the parents thought that was a good deal. So they bought it. And it worked. All her life she was gracious and happy and contented. She had a hard life though her husband left her and deserted her without any money and her kids were just vandalums and mooched off of her and left her without even any notice and the social security ran out and she lived from mouth, hand to mouth, but she never grabbed and she never complained because she had gotten the Happy Meal. And is that the way life works? Not hardly. You would think, wouldn't you, after a while, you'd think that even kids would say, hey, I'm not going to get bought into that deal again. It didn't work. But that doesn't happen. And by the way, the little Happy Meals that they market so well is just for kids, right? They're the only ones that do that. I'm not sure that we... Uh, get a lot smarter as we get older. I think the Happy Meals just cost more. There's two messages that bombard us constantly, constantly. And the two messages are that you ought to be discontent. I mean, look what you don't have. Look what you need. Look, you ought to be discontent. It's the marketing concept. And the second thing that we're bombarded with constantly is that you're only one step away from contentment. Buy this product, get this brand that this will bring. And just look at all the things you can do with nothing but, a, but your hair. I mean, you can wash it and dye it and dry it and mousse it and straighten it and curl it and rego it or whatever. I mean, that's just for beginnings. And we probably, <clears throat> without a doubt, that's not even probably. Are the best felt, best fed, best dressed, best informed, live the longest, work the least, have more pleasure than any people who have ever lived on the face of this earth? Survey doesn't show we're any more contented. In fact, it shows we're less. I guess it just means that we're bigger, stronger, faster, well fed well-clothed, better informed, <clears throat> discontented people. Solomon had something to say about that. As Solomon started in Ecclesiastes in chapter 1, he said, I've seen it all, and it's all useless. It doesn't have any meaning. It's vanity of vanity. The ears never get... They never hear enough, and the eyes never see enough. After they've heard all they heard, they want to hear more. After they've seen all they see, they want to see more. It's never enough. 
a preacher said he was sent by his kids just to get a view of what the culture was taking place several years ago when the Rolling Stones had a concert in the Rose Bowl. When he got there, he saw 85,000 people. And uh, someone nudged him beside him and said, uh, you know, if you could speak to these people, what would you say? There are more people here today at this concert that will be in all the churches in Pasadena Sunday. He said, well, he didn't know until he heard Miss Jaggers start singing, Can't Get No Satisfaction. And 85,000 people joined alone, Can't Get No Satisfaction, but we try. And they just echoed what Solomon said. You can have great sex, have great fame, have great money, great status. Can't get no satisfaction. Now I might surprise you <clears throat> when I tell you that I think that was God's design. I might surprise you to tell you I think it is built in us that God designed that says you can't get any satisfaction. I want to read Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> I think it verifies that theory. <clears throat> I consider our present suffering not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creatures wait in eager anticipation for the sons of God to be revealed. We keep expecting something, he's saying. Can't find it here. For the creature was subject to frustration. That's been our life. It was God's design. Not by our own choice, but by the will of the one who subject us in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom the children of God. He goes on and talks about how this generation, how we mourn and how we are eager and how we wait. And I think God is saying, I have built in you where that you cannot find contentment in this world. And I built it in in hopes that you would quit looking here and you would start looking for me. That as soon as the fall, I knew you were going to build false gods. I knew you were going to seek pleasure. I knew you were going to seek all of these things. And I built it in so you can never find contentment in them. That's why the prodigal son came home. He couldn't find it in the far country. If he'd have found it there, he'd have never come back home, quote, to God. <clears throat> and so we can roam and we can try to find it and we can search for it, but it isn't there. And that's why he talks about in Matthew 6, seek ye first the kingdom. Seek God first and then all these things will be added. The truth is that <clears throat> where God said he kept us frustrated... Jesus frustrated his disciples, asked questions they couldn't answer constantly. It was part of his great teaching, frustration. If you knew all the answers, you wouldn't be asking any. If you weren't frustrated a little bit, you wouldn't be searching. 
Now, in the nation of Israel, <clears throat> I suppose the most two common words that tells the whole story of the nation of Israel is griping and complaining. If you want to sum up the history of the Exodus, that would be it. There was 400 years of slavery. And in that 400 years of slavery was 400 years of dreaming of freedom. Dreaming of freedom. I want to stop a minute and ask some of you who are on the back rows who will die back on the back row. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, do you really, does it help you a great deal if I stay up here? I want to consider everybody. But do you see how hard it is? I start here and you just pull me. I want to get close to you. And, and so here I am back again, but I probably won't stay long. But anyway, talk to me on the back rows and tell me if it is that big and that significant. I'll just tie myself up here somewhere. Well, this 400 years, so talk to me and help me. This 400 years of bondage, they had dreamed and dreamed of getting freedom. And in essence, they said, if we can just get our freedom, we'll be happy. Just get our little happy meal. Get our freedom. That's all we want. Well, God intervenes and they got it. They got their identity. They got a, a, a future home. They had God as their father taking care of them, guiding them. They had it all, so to speak. But guess what? Guess what? It didn't last very long. Exodus chapter 15 <clears throat> And verse 22, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Sur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. And then they came to Marah. They could not drink its water because it was bitter. That's why it was called the place. So the people grumbled and said to Moses, What are we going to drink? Complaining and murmuring. Some words, the sound of the word gives the definition of the word. And that's almost with the word murmuring. You just hear the moon. Ugly, ugly. And that's all Moses is hearing. And guess what? God intervenes again. They get water now, they're going to be happy, right? And so, in verse 2 of chapter 16, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hands in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food that we wanted. But you brought us out in this desert to starve us. And the entire assembly... You hear the grumbling? You hear what they're saying to Moses? We thought it was bad back there, but wow, at least we had something to eat back there. We'd have been better off if we'd have died. We're not asking for much if we could just have a full stomach and a quick death. That's all we want. Well, 
If we just had bread, we'd be grateful. Three times it says they grumbled against God. I want to tell you, I think there's a sense in which all grumbling and complaining ultimately, ultimately, is against God. Think about it. Well, God intervenes again and sends them down manna. And they have manna that they can eat. They don't have anything to eat, so he sends them manna, and they got manna everywhere. And it's kind of like Forrest Gump when Bubba was talking about his shrimp and all the kind of shrimp he was going to have. They could have had baked manna and boiled manna and barbecued manna and manna on a stick and manna banana bread or whatever. I mean, manna everywhere. So, they are happy now, right? Numbers 11 and verse 4. The rabbles with them, that's R-A-B-B-L-E-S, probably could be better translated to riffraff. Troublemakers. They began to crave other food and as, as it were, got the other Israelites to join along with them and start doing the same thing. They remembered how they ate back in Egypt and it didn't cost them anything. The cucumbers and the lemons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic and on and on. <clears throat> well, I want to tell you what's so terribly destructive about complaining. The nature of complaining is this contagious. That's what's so destructive about it. It doesn't just stop with one. It is serious. When a few start it, a few get it started, it just like it just snowballs and just start grappling, complaining, and criticizing. And it just becomes a way of life. And criticize the leadership and on and on. In fact, the business, it is so serious, those that cause trouble and complain, in Titus chapter 3, he said, you warn them once, you might even warn them twice, but after that, you don't have anything to do with them. Well, you come down in verse 18, and God says, I'm going to give you meat. Intervenes again, and you're going to have meat, and you're going to have it eat it until it runs out your ears, so to speak. But it, it still didn't help. I want to read to you, this is, I want to show you the power of complaining. I said how it's so contagious. Moses heard that the people of each of the families wailing, uh, each at the entrance of his tent. And Moses became exceedingly angry. And he was troubled. He asked the Lord, why have you brought this trouble on your servant. What have I done to displease you that you'd put the burdens of all these people on me? I'm reading in verse 12 of Numbers chapter 11. Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Did I? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms like a nurse uh, carrying an infant to the land that you promised? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing at me. Give us meat. Give us meat. I can't carry all these people by myself and the burden is too heavy for me. If this is what you're going, if this is how you're going to treat me, put me to death right now if I've found favor in your eyes. 
And you hear what's happening? All of a sudden, everybody's asking for Dr. Kevorkian. Moses even gets in on the act. Now, he wants to die. And, and the reason is because of the grappling and the complaining of the people. And after he gives them meat, it still doesn't help. And so here's the lesson in essence, at least part of it, is that complaining destroys leadership. If you want to destroy the leadership, if you want to just, just complain, that's all you have to do. Rumble, grumble, rumble, grumble. Destroys it. And how many preachers are leaving the pulpits like rats leaving sinking ship because of grappling, complaining, and criticizing? Can't handle it. Don't have to live that way. How many elders, great elders, would be elders, can't stay complaining and criticizing? The other side of that is, I spoke to our class over here <clears throat> one day and I was telling them, we need to be very, very careful when they're choosing uh, your preacher. I don't know how careful you were when you got me. But you need to be <clears throat> very, very picky. I mean picky, picky, picky. And, and maybe you can't get the best preacher in the world, but you got at least get someone with a sweet spirit. You don't need to beat up every Sunday. You get beat up enough during the week. I have to come here to get beat up. And so you have to be very careful and very slow and do the research and, and, and help try to avoid all of that. And then I talked to him about if you, when you're choosing elders, again, you just have to be very, very picky and careful and get great men of sweet spirits that are, can love people and guide them, lead them by their life. And one of the things that's so strange about our congregation, I mean, our fellowship is, and the reason this is so big and so important, we don't have any method of getting them out. Except funerals. Well, that's, what I, that's what's happening here. Had a few funerals and go on, but, but I mean, and so we don't have any means. We don't have any methods. So it gets so important that we're very, very careful and wise. And I want to go back and repeat that criticism is contagious and it destroys leadership. You can destroy these elders. I mean, just destroy them. They can't handle it. I can tell you that. They can't handle it. They need to hear some praise. They need to hear some encouragement. Well, I want to tell you how big this criticism is. This criticizing is. Over in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In verse 10 uh, of, cha of 1 Corinthians, he said, I, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud as they passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Now, this is the Exodus that we've been studying. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drinks, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them their bodies were scattered all over the desert. 
Well, why wasn't he pleased with them? Four reasons. In the next verses, he tells us that he wasn't pleased with them. Four reasons. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on the evil things that they did. He said, I've told you this story about Israel and how they react and how God reacted to them, so you won't do the same thing. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up and indulged in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and one day 23,000 died. We should not test the Lord God as some of them did and were killed by the snakes and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Here are the four things that they did that God said I was so displeased with. Number one, they made idols. Number two, they were immoral in their acts. Number three, they defiled the very authority of God. And number four, they grumbled. A strong company. That's how big it is. In Isaiah chapter 55, here's the essence of what God is wanting us to do. In verse 1, Come all ye who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and drink. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what it will not satisfy? Listen. Listen to me, and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the riches afar. God said, I'm not talking about this fat-free, low-cale stuff. I'm talking about the best, the richest there is. And you can come, you don't even have to have money to buy. And I'm, I'm hoping that sooner or later that you'll find out this is where Contentment is, is in me. And so here's the lesson in one sentence. I think that if we find any, what, put it this way, what little contentment we can find, we'll find it in the fact that God loves us. That's it. Everything else is a happy meal. As soon as it runs out, you have to have another fix and another fix. The lasting, what little lasting contentment we can find in this world will be found in the fact that God loves you. I guess that's why I preached on that every Sunday I've been here so far. That's where it is. There's a little verse hid way back over in 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4 and about verse 15. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he lives in God. Now listen. And so we know and we rely on the love of, that God has for us. It's the only thing that I know that I can rely on that I can ultimately trust. It's the only thing I can let all my weight down on, in essence, he says, is the fact that God loves me.
in the days when the airplanes were first starting to fly, my dad, I talked to my dad, my dad remembers the first airplane he ever saw. And so they would, on those occasions, <clears throat> kids would make up a little money, 50 cents, and send Grandpa up and let him take a little ride. So they sent him up there and they spun him around a couple of times, brought him back down. They all rushed out there and said, how you like it? Yeah, he said it was pretty good. But I said, I'll tell you one thing, I never did put all my weight down on it. <laughs> well, you can put all your weight down on this. And it's the only thing you can put your weight on. You can't put it on if you got it figured out so right. And all your church tradition. The only thing that's going to give just a little, least little bit of contentment in this world is the fact that God loves you. That's it. And we know and we rely on the love of God that He has for us. Now, I never, normally never do this, so I'll tell you ahead of time, very rare, but out of the message, not, not translated as scripture, just a man's opinion and a paraphrase, but it says it so beautifully as I close. Living then in pure grace, which everybody does, it's important that you not interpret yourself as people who are bringing this goodness to God. No. It's God who brings it to us. And here's the key. The only accurate way to understand ourselves is by what God, by, by what God is and by what he does for us. Not who we are and not what we're doing for him. The only accurate way of understanding ourselves is understanding who God is and what he's done for us. The only key for a little satisfaction, a little contentment. Well, if you've uh, bought the Happy Meals and chased them, bigger and more of them, and it didn't satisfy, come, come buy the real bread. Isaiah said that will last. And you don't even have to have money. Just a surrendered heart. A bowed knee. That's all you have to have. Isn't that good? Come while we stand and sing. I can hear my singing. <clears throat>